Welcome back after a small break to the Authentic Artistry podcast with me, Kitty Bazalgette, as your host. This is the podcast in which we explore what it means to find authenticity as a performer. How do we find it? How do we express it on stage? And to try and answer just some of those questions that it throws up for yourself in the process. All of the things that don't quite fit into a minute and a half video on Instagram. Before we get into my guest today, if you're enjoying listening to the podcast, give us a rating, a review on the podcast platform that you're listening to us on, and that will help us get listened to by many more wonderful creatives. Now grab yourself a cup of something and let's get into the podcast. My guest today is a dynamic maker of opera and theatre with a passion for collaborative creative work and an artistic vision which aims to balance integrity and innovation. She has worked as a writer and director for companies including Scottish Opera, English Touring Opera, Glyndebourne, Buxton International Festival, Royal Opera House and Water Perry Opera Festival. She is fast becoming known for the richness and clarity of her storytelling. She is a published poet and her songs and song cycles have been performed internationally. She's also a coach and workshop leader for various artists. Laura Attridge, welcome to the Authentic Artistry podcast. So happy that we are able to talk today. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. I always start with these questions. So question one, what does authentic artistry mean to you? I think it is art made with integrity, with truthfulness and with one's whole self. Interesting. Integrity comes up, uh, has come up a few times. Also, the whole self, I think, is is implied in, in authenticity, but often not known how to convey that on stage, I think. Absolutely. And I think I think for all of us, it's it's that ongoing relationship with self that ever-changing relationship with oneself within and around and inside and part of the art making and I think that's the it's an endlessly fascinating journey to be on isn't it just it can feel overwhelming when when you start but then it's it's so many doors to be opened and and things to be learned for sure yeah Question two, what are three qualities or capabilities in other musicians or creatives that inspire you? Curiosity, patience, and the courage not to apologize for oneself. Oh, yes, I love that. And I really think curiosity and patience are so related. Ooh, yeah. Absolutely. I think in order to trust in where curiosity takes you, you have to be patient. Totally. Totally. What was the last concert that you went to go and see? So I went to see, and I say this, um, uh, having gone to this concert, thinking, God, I should go to more concerts. And it reminded me I should go to more concerts because it was extraordinary. Um, It was Alice uh, Zawadzki's Bag of Bones with Manchester Collective. and I went Ooh. to see it in um, in Leeds. They were touring uh, the the piece um, at Slunglow Theatres headquarters or their new their new venue, which is a big warehouse in in Holbeck, in Leeds. And it was just everything I wanted it to be and more. It was utterly astonishing and inspiring, and sent me away just yeah, feeling so privileged to have been in that audience. So cool. Manchester Collective are an amazing group. Our next question. If you could have dinner with any musician, performer or artist throughout history, living or dead, who would it be and why? 
this came to me uh, straight away. And then I thought, goodness, it can't be, it can't be that easy or it can't be that simple. Let me think of some others and just think if I want to have dinner with them. And I kept coming back to the novelist Angela Carter, who is just my favorite writer of all time, but also is somebody who just was so ahead of her time, such an extraordinary writer, so in many ways unappreciated in her in her lifetime and, and taken from us relatively early. Um, my wonderful mum wrote her PhD on Angela Carter, and I have such a strong bond with my with my mother and and I think of her whenever I read Angela Carter and there's just so much of my makeup as a person that comes from her writing and her exploration of feminism in fiction um I just would love to be in the room with that energy and I'd have to invite my mum <laughs> you can have a small dinner party a few other people have had small dinner yes. parties too okay. <laughs> Angela Carter would be the only dead person <laughs> And final question, how would you describe your work to someone who's never met you before? The, the dry version is uh, I'm a director and writer uh, and coach. And the, I don't know, the whole, the wholeness version, the authentic version, I guess, is I tell stories through text and music. Nice. I, to the point as well. That's an elevator pitch right there. <laughs> so just to, to start off, I think because... It's interesting your your background because I I read and I think I also saw something on on Instagram about the fact that you or maybe it was on another podcast actually um, I think it was on AA Opera Pod so I'm going to name drop name drop them in here but but you had originally studied singing so what has your career path looked like towards the current work that you're you're doing how's that affected your work and and authenticity so. Um... From very, 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 very early age, I was wanting to tell stories in all sorts of ways. So I was performing, I was writing, I was singing, um, I was always expressing myself. Um, my parents, I think, when I was very little, worried I didn't really know the difference between fiction and reality, but we were okay. Um, and then I was that kid at school who I was always in all the shows and in the choirs and I was writing poetry um, on the side as well. I was very serious about that. But then one year there was going to be no school production. And I said, this is not acceptable. I shall produce and star in and direct and, you know, whatever. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the year I did my GCSEs, I also produced and directed and played Algernon. It was an all girls school in the importance of being earnest. And I was like, oh, I quite like this directing malarkey. So I did more of that in sixth form. And then at university, I went to do English literature undergraduate at Newcastle University, partly because they had a great English department, but also because they had a really, really well-respected theatre society. So I, I spent three years absolutely immersed in the theatre society and, and started off performing with them and then moved into directing. So I directed two quite high-level student productions in my third year and just absolutely love doing that both um, plays rather than musicals or, or opera and in the meantime I was writing and I was singing I was you know doing all of these things separately pretty much um, and I had spent a lot of my younger years going I want to be an opera singer um, but I'd gone for various reasons I hadn't I decided not to go to conservatoire or try to go to conservatoire for undergrad uh, undergraduate um, but I thought I'll do my undergrad and then I will 
um, at, towards the end of it, I'll audition for conservatoire and I'll go and do a master's or a postgraduate uh, singing. And for various reasons, one of them being the recession, I was like, I can't, I can't go and do that. I need to go do something sensible. So the, the year after I graduated, I found myself working in uh, the production offices of a large West End company. Um, absolutely miserable. I was working in, in admin um, and someone uh, who didn't know me very well, who's, who was a colleague, said, well, why are you doing this to yourself? You're clearly utterly miserable. Um, and I said, well, because it's sensible and it's sort of in theatre and, you know, I've got to be sensible. And they said, well, what would you do if you weren't being sensible? And I said, well, I've always wanted to be an opera singer. And they said, well, why, why aren't you doing that? And I said, oh, I don't know. So that was in, I think that was sort of October, November um, of 2012, 2011 must have been 2011. I quit that job. It was too late for me to audition. And I hadn't been singing in about nine or 10 months. So I needed to, to start singing again. So prepared to audition the following year. Got my place at the Royal College of Music. I was continuing to work in sort of um, arts and education admin. Um, so got my place, had another year before I then started at the RCM in 2013 age 25, I was like, finally, I'm living my dream. <laughs> and what I hadn't prepared for, and this was the kicker, was for things to go well, but for something to be missing. I thought either I'll be good enough and I'll find out I'm good enough and I'll go and do it, or I won't be good enough and that's okay because I've got other interests as well and I'll go and pursue them. And it went really well, but I wasn't happy. Mm. And I was I was lucky enough to have some good advice along the way. And I had met I had met Stuart Barker, uh, who at the time was was basically running BYO, British Youth Opera, who directed me some scenes in the February of that year. So that sort of halfway point when I was having a bit of a crisis. And I said, Stuart, do you have five minutes to talk to me about opera directing? Because I'm not sure about this singing malarkey. Um, and he said, oh, did you know that that um, BYO has an assistant director placement? And I had had no idea. So I applied and I interviewed and I had that lined up that summer. And a week before I was supposed to start that, I called the RCM and said, I'm sorry, I'm not coming back. I, it's not, it's not for me. And I, wow. walked, I walked into that rehearsal room on that meet and greet day for BYO. And I went around the room introducing myself as the assistant director. And I felt more like myself and more honest and more truthful and more, this is me than any time I'd said, hi, I'm Laura, I'm a singer. And despite the fact that I was so much more sort of trained and knowledgeable about singing, I spent, you know, years on that. And I didn't know that much about assistant directing, but I didn't feel defensive. I didn't feel, you know, anytime I was, anytime I was being directed as a singer or, you know, working as a singer, I felt ready to be told I was wrong or ready to be defensive. Or there was something in, in, in that new role that just made me feel like, I'm comfortable with what I don't know and I'm ready to work. Um, it's funny how how that um, that feeling of saying what you do and that reaction that you get physically, it can tell you so much about what's going right and what's not. Absolutely. Um, so that was, that was the beginning um, and that was nine years ago. So I'm nearly at 10 years of, of this work and it, it sort of, it went from there. And I think what was really useful about that journey, among so many things, one of the most useful things in terms of, I guess, the way that I understand the progression of my career is a relationship with failure, because I have seen played out 
how important it is to commit to the next thing and to let it lead you to where you're supposed to go. Because there would be, and you know, I, I'm sure I have beaten myself up for this in the past, and, I, and I'm sure I did at the time, but that that move away from singing, I spent 25 odd years going, I want to be a singer. I could tell myself, oh, I failed at being a singer. Or that I either that or oh, I started being a director and a writer too late and I'm behind. Like I could beat myself up for not getting it right. But the truth is that I would never be where I am now and capable of doing what I'm capable of doing as an artist, but also offering to other artists in, in all of my work. If I hadn't gone through those stages, I could not have gone to um to do my singing training if I hadn't done those three years in admin. Um, which were the worst three years of my life, but but I learned so much. And I'm, there's so much that I do as a freelancer in the way that I manage my time that I've learned from doing admin jobs and been very good at them. I could never have got to where I am now without having, oh, this is a crucial part of my story that I forgot, without having directed my first opera and written my first libretto while at the college. So all of it leads to the next thing, which is I think a really helpful way of reframing what what failure is and what failure what we tell ourselves failure is it's just the next step to the next thing it it becomes less a kind of did you do it yes or no did you succeed yes or no and actually sees more of the perspective like what led to each thing and how has that helped me rather than oh well I didn't complete my postgraduate studies and therefore I failed like that's a very narrow way of seeing it and actually it's broadened your possibilities from what I hear so much I mean I'm very lucky that I was I was peeved at the time but I'm very lucky that the RCM when I when I started I was on their postgraduate one year grad dip course so I wasn't tied into a two-year master's because I don't Mm. I think I would have had to stick with it I would not have allowed myself to run away after just a year so I was very very lucky that they have that sort of um that that, um that scheme really that allows you to go and especially when you haven't done an undergrad um Mm. in singing to go is this for me actually and to really understand what the what the system of a conservatory is like before you commit to a master's so that worked out really nicely for me although I was like how dare you not put me on the master's but um yeah it worked out really really nicely but you can't always see it at the time can I ask you what was it that was making you unhappy there well it was a lot of things um I felt inadequate in a lot of ways I didn't feel driven enough I didn't feel um I had issues with and we can maybe come on to this a little bit later in the work that I do now with singers but I didn't feel how do I put this diplomatically I didn't feel like the course was giving me what I needed for my training for uh, realistically to go out into the world and be a singer mm. I found a lot of the course incredibly frustrating and that was quite scary because I'm someone who likes to wring everything they can out of an opportunity and I just thought I'm just not getting what I need um but but primarily it was the the moment when um I got to d- direct something and the moment that I got to see my work that I had written on stage and going, oh, talk to, talk to everyone, have a lovely time, off you go. And sitting in the audience and going, I made that. Again, it was this sort of really visceral, physical sensation that was so different to, you know, the, the most prestigious performance that I did that year myself up there on that stage. 
it was completely different experience that just felt like I yeah that having made something um and having empowered others to perform it was so much more satisfying and validating than than doing it myself yeah you can also you hear a lot in in how how, how you're talking about it like with the I made that there's like the pride in in the way that, that you say it and and it's so yeah it's so inspiring to hear to hear that it's it's an amazing amazing thing I get to do you mentioned a couple of times the work you, that you do with singers with with artists what is the work that you that you do in in coaching also what is what are you looking for as someone who has sat on on a on a commission for casting so the work that I do, I think, is a lot in response to my own experience at Conservatoire and, and um, the insight that I had then and that I have also through friends and colleagues and I'm married to a singer. Like, I know, I understand the singer's experience and that is such a such a privilege and such a useful tool for the work that I do as a director. But beyond that, seeing... A, tr- a traditional training environment, which unless you have the luck to come across particular uh, teachers or mentors or tutors that are hired by that training institution who happen to have a particular kind of ethos, you know, that is the kind of ethos that, that we are talking about, that you talk about in your work, that, that, that I kind of espouse in my work, usually those training environments uh without those individuals or even with them but you know that's one person within a system they are they are little microcosms of the world the industry that says seek external validation um that you are not to be trusted you need to be trying to achieve these things that are outside of you um which i think is such a I mean, so many adjectives I could apply to that. Such a sad state of affairs because it is it is not training you to be an artist. Fundamentally, it's, it's not training you to, to, to be an artist who understands that and, and has command of and is curious about their own artistry and what they have to offer. What I try and do, so technically speaking, I offer um, one-to-one coachings um, primarily with singers, but also to writers to you know um aspiring artists of of sort of anything that I've got my got my hand in but primarily with singers and we usually work on acting um usually on repertoire that they're going to be offering for audition so out of the context of a production and if that uh if that that is the case if I'm working with somebody like that I am offering them tools to direct it themselves essentially, and in such a way that also enables them to give their best performance. So it's unless someone desperately comes in and says, I want you to direct this aria for me, please. I'm going to be there going, let me let me help you direct this one aria that you've brought to me, but also give you the tools to go out and direct all your other arias as well, Mm. while giving you the tools you need to give your best audition, the kind of audition I would want to see. Because what I see a lot of the time is singers come into an audition room who have worked so hard on all of their repertoire, which is wonderful. And you can see it and it's all there, but it's 
all inside their heads and none of it is in their eyes or their bodies or in the room. So I, as a panel member, feel completely disconnected from them. And I'm there going, God, I know you're brilliant. And yeah, you're seeing this really well, but I'm not connecting with you at all because you are so in your head and not in your eyes and in your breath and in your body and in the space. So the tools that I use, which are incredibly simple, um, are also there to demonstrate, they're really great because they're all kind of lots of birds with one stone, um, to demonstrate to performers that everything that they need, they have already. Mm. So that's that's the way that that I work. And I, you know, in all, the, in all of the work that I do with workshops for performers as well, again, that's about sort of reframing their autonomy it's asking them to connect with themselves as artists in a way that that nobody has asked them to do you know I'm not blaming the singer coming in who doesn't have those tools I know the system that they've been through I've been through it and they're they're being they're not being given even the most basic kind of acting tools let alone the support to actually kind of um, employ those tools to prepare repertoire and also this this idea of because we rely as singers we rely so much on the teacher and people to tell us what to do so we yeah we it, we don't take our own initiative with okay what can i do so be uh, being given tools to seek it for yourself it, yeah like you say it creates so much more autonomy and and yeah this idea of i have everything that i need within me to find the answers i just need to Un- unlock it that's very much the the coaching approach of you have the answers you perhaps just need someone to just dig up and and uncover a little bit of uh, of mud that's on the on the top of the surface exactly that you need you need the right questions and I think that comes back to that the word that we talked about earlier which is curiosity and and the willingness to be curious, which I think is is sort of almost in opposition to the attempt to get it right. Because I think there is, once you try and start to control an outcome of your performance or its effect on a panel, I mean, singers come to that, how can I, how can I show the panel that I've done, that I've decided all this backstory and I've done all these things and this is my character interpretation. I'm like, they won't know, sweetheart. Like they will have no idea. You literally can't show them. So stop freaking out about controlling their response to you Mm. because it's getting in the way of the power that you actually have to give uh, a present, nuanced, clear performance. Um, But I think, again, that comes from that messaging of you need to get it right. You need to um, you need to control a response. You need to have that that the validation is about, I don't know, there's a there's a some issues with perfectionism in there that I think are really really dangerous as well this idea of almost like a chessboard or something and like having to make all of the right moves so that you can make the eventual checkmate which is you getting the audition but singing and and art and music is is not is not that kind of logical game it's it's very much based on feeling sensation connection and yeah you can you can teach that in a way you can ask someone to look for it for for themselves but you can't play a game where you can control every outcome and then someone say yes to you 
Absolutely. It's just it's just impossible. One of my big sort of taglines within the audition workshops that I do and when I work with singers, sometimes sometimes one to one on kind of audition technique or we weave that into our work together on, you know, uh, acting and, and performance. One of my massive things is what you can control versus what you can't control. And if you're too busy trying to control the things you actually cannot, you literally cannot control, you get in the way of the things that you can and and thereby get in your own way in a in a really fundamental way in an unhelpful way totally I I want to ask as well because I'm really interested about opera in in the 21st century whether it be performing historical works from the past or performing new works and you've done both and what is your approach to I think firstly coach and to directing historical opera in the 21st century that come with a lot of difficult topics that in the 21st century are maybe don't maybe don't land so well so how does one take a feminist approach to opera in the 21st century that's such a big question <laughs> um yeah it's a really good question and i think it's important to 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 acknowledge that there is no one way and it's and it's really important that there is no one way, because I think again it's about exploring what what the possibilities are. Um, I think question number one always has to be: Should we be doing this opera at all? And I think more and more the question the the answer might well be no. But I think there are there are just you know endless possibilities of of the ways in which you can explore. Or, sort of canon opera through a feminist lens. I think what I've done in the past, and that I think I'm, I'm, I'm sure I will use again, um, but I'm moving away from, I get the sense I'm moving away from is that I have, I have lent into my own discomfort with certain pieces and offered that discomfort to an audience to, and, and shown them what it is in the piece that makes me uncomfortable, but also what what it is in the world that makes me uncomfortable. Because I think there is a there is a way for a piece to be relevant because it still reflects things that happen in our world today. And sadly, those things are still happening, right? Mm. People like Don Giovanni still exist. But it's looking looking at um shining a light on the things that are happening in the world and asking the audience to go out and and make change and to to be aware and to to be to be curious to be challenging those things that are just should not be happening anymore um so that's one way of going about it and i think that is a really important and valid way and it's a it is a useful way of approaching core repertoire while not i say this with with a pinch of salt but like staying true to without doing massive revisions of um, the original material there there are ways of kind of using it but saying this is ironic or this is this is not okay even mm. though we're still using that text you know um and then that then I think there are of course importantly ways of approaching core repertoire that does change it the the composers and the librettists have had enough airtime in in um in their like let's say big air quotes like original true form like we can fuck with them right we can we can rip them apart it's fine like they are old enough and they are hairy enough and like it's you know 
you can't you absolutely can't complain that somebody's going to make do something different they're out of copyright you know come on so i think there there are approaches where we can be playful where we can if we think that the material still holds things to say in a revised version right and i think that there are if we decide that there it, there is something to be said then the material holds up and i think it can that can be in a lot of ways but i think what's really important for me that I discovered last year, having taken that sort of leaning into the discomfort approach for quite a while with a lot of what what I do, was last year I had a realisation of just just how traumatic it is to be a woman working in an an art form that historically fetishises women's suffering and does so through layers and layers and layers of male perspective. And just what a toll that takes on one's well-being in telling those stories again and again, in seeing those stories and in having those almost become your sort of bread and butter, your everyday, that women suffer. And so I think I think it's really tricky, but I think what I'm coming around to now more and more is, is not that I didn't believe this before, but I feel more and more certain that we have to tell new stories. I'm all I'm all for retelling the old stories, but ultimately for the future of this art form, we have to tell new stories. You've actually just put words on something that I have felt but didn't know how to describe because there have been a few times recently when I've gone to to see something, an opera, or actually also I think it, I felt it in the case of Tar as well. But I, I went to go and see uh, something at the Dutch National Opera back in February or January. And it was exactly this feeling, this idea of of women's suffering being fetishized and me feeling deeply uncomfortable. And yeah, in a way, this this sense of un, it being unnecessary and I, I can't enjoy it because I feel so uncomfortable and so in a way oppressed a bit by by this kind of way of telling the story and and I, I think I felt that a little bit with Tar as well I, d- I don't know if you've seen it but um yeah this I- idea that it's still women who are suffering in this case at the hands of a woman but it's still women who are the victims and and that there's this idea that we w- we will never come out of this of this position and like you say it's new stories need to be told and that's not to say okay now men need to be the victims but new stories where maybe no one is really a victim or or something where it doesn't have to be all about oppression on someone and that there's something new to be told and it doesn't always have to be love and tragedy yeah or just women doing other things women having jobs like women living their daily lives yeah yeah exactly so I think there are there is so much joy to be explored, um, not just female characters, but but characters with all sorts of gender identities doing different things than, than they've been portrayed doing. Um, characters of all different demographics um, and different experiences and I just new people's experiences on stage. Like I found real joy through expressing my own queerness on stage. I experimented with 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 sort of smaller um, realizations of that in in various things I'd directed and written, which culminated in 
last summer my production of Scylla for uh, Northern Opera Group. The, the opera calls for six heterosexual couples, all of whom are upper voices. So potentially six, uh, sorry, sorry, three trouser rolls involved in those in those couples. The mid, let's say, the middle couple, um, the 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 sort of second couple uh, in the sort of power structure and and sort of age are two sopranos. So because the the older couple and then the and the the younger couple are both mezzo a mezzo and a soprano, but the middle couple are two sopranos. We went through the casting process and we cast all all uh, women. Um, we heard some counter tenors; they weren't they weren't quite right for the for the roles. And we thought, God, does it have to be six heterosexual couples? And if so, why? And this middle couple who are at the literally at the heart of the opera, um, emotionally, but also they they have the one extended duet in the entire opera, and it and it sits. If you open the score halfway, it sits in the middle. And this duet is about affirming their love for one another. And it's like seven minutes long, because Handel, right? And it's seven minutes of, or even longer than seven minutes of expressing their love for one another. And Martin Picard, who, who I worked with closely as he did the translation, I know, <laughs> he's such a babe, um, did this a beautiful, beautiful job um, of translating this, uh, uh, this duet about this, you know, uh, the affirmation of their love. But the B section included the text, no man can harm us. And, and it had to be two women. Um, and it was one of the most extraordinary, beautiful experiences of my professional life to create this, this duet where we are held for seven minutes with this expression of love and joy and strength um, from, this, from this couple who throughout the opera trust in one another, have faith in one another, have faith in love. Um, and are the are the sort of moral and emotional rock of the entire piece. And also it was so lovely having an English translation so you could hear them refer to one another as my wife and just to go, yeah, this is freaking normal and beautiful and joyful. And there, yeah, there were a lot of tears in the rehearsal room when we were um, we were rehearsing that because just so much seemed to be unlocked by the permission to do that as well. I can totally imagine. I just hearing it, I feel like, so inspired and and also wishing wishing I could have seen it and I I think this topic of of queerness on stage is so so important something that often people don't dare to do quite likely because most many people in the director's chair don't have that experience to think oh maybe I want to change this slightly and it becomes sadly very heterocentric it's about asking asking these kinds of questions and not being afraid to play a little bit with with what has been written and it creates totally new dynamic and a dynamic that most people won't have seen before so it's completely refreshing a work that has been performed for 250 years absolutely yeah it was funny directing that duet and or and making that making that choice um for that thread to run throughout and to be so consistent and sustained you know it was a big decision because there's only seven characters in the opera right so this was a really big central thing and i realized that i'd been doing that in small way I'd, i i looked back and i was like oh okay my leporello was a gay man 
I wrote in a pair of lovely queer scientists into an opera I wrote for Leeds Youth Opera. They're both botanists and they fall in love in the lab and they have a sexy duet, which is just saying different plant names at each other. I I did a set of scenes um, for the Royal Scottish Conservatoire last year and we had a scene, a Romeo and Juliet scene um, between two, two women because it made so much sense suddenly this nuance of the story of Juliet saying, well, I have to respect my father, I can't. I can't leave and my family doesn't want this for me. And Romeo going, no, come away with me. Come on, we can find freedom together as a queer couple. Like it just, I but I'd done it in those small ways. And I and we'd and um Lewis Murphy and I, so Lewis, who I work with, we wrote a little pop-up opera years ago called First Date, which happened to be between two men. And I, you know, I'm 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 in a heterosexual presenting relationship. Um, I don't get to express my queerness very much, but I realized. I've been doing it for years mm. and I just had I had no idea that I've been doing that on purpose oh I feel a bit emotional telling you that I just it's so important to me and again not in a like queer people suffering but of course they we do but queer joy and love and just being fucking people you know it's so empowering and and it's telling people stories and and from from what you've said like you're a storyteller and and you're telling stories through that and and the thing that i think is so important for opera especially is that it becomes representative there's always this question i mentioned it when i was with, talking with with trisha that there's always this question of how do we make opera more accessible how do we get the younger generation to 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 go and watch opera well in exactly the ways that that you direct opera because this is these are stories that people want to see because it's different and and it's representative of of this generation and you know it's it's a way of of extending an arm and saying we tell everyone's stories we're not just telling stories of man and woman who fall in love and then the woman dies <laughs> yes. yeah bad this- women <laughs> Yeah, there's just so much more going on in the world that that needs to be expressed through the extraordinary art form that opera is. And it is extraordinary. It's so extraordinary. I have this really, I think, such a conflicted relationship with it because there are so many times when I'm like, I can't anymore. I just can't. And then I hear from people like you and I think there is hope. There is hope. Oh, I really hope there is. I feel like I hope that there is a whole generation of us coming up who want to make different opera, tell mm. tell tell new stories. There's a lot to do, I think, with the institutions because I, I feel like at its core, the art form itself has potential to tell those stories. We know that to be true, but the institutions, mm, not, not so much. I had a, a lovely conversation with my, my grandma-in-law who is who's a woman of faith we were chatting away about about opera and I was trying to explain you know the art form great institutions not so great and she's like oh like the church of England I was like yes Shirley yes like there is something there is something beautiful that 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 we believe in which is opera right and then there's all the structures that are holding the art form back even before you start thinking about the damage that they do to to people and our you know to lives 
fundamentally it stops the art the 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 form being what it could be in the world and essentially what what we are all trying to do is to create and be creative and expand and I really have this feeling sometimes that institutions that are holding this tradition up it's it's like putting a clamp on on people on the creativity of people so that it adheres to mm. how it has been instead of looking to how it could be absolutely uh, and crucially it's not asking questions or being curious it's going this is right this is wrong this is how we do it this is how to fit into that mold and if you don't fit into it you failed you're out totally totally it's it's such a it's such a disappointment and it's funny <laughs> Yeah, but it's it's funny because I think once you come out of of the institutions, well, some people don't, but at least I have found myself asking myself way more questions since finishing my master of, okay, but is this actually the, the career that I want to be doing? I mean, I have a few hats, so that's also nice for me, but asking questions of, what could institutions, artistic education, music education be doing better to support the creativity of, of young artists? It's vital. Absolutely. What I discovered, again, I suppose on, on the, the project last summer on, on Scylla, we did various things differently in the rehearsal room. I, I was leading the space in a certain way. And we also had an intimacy coordinator uh, on board who even though there was no sort of graphic material, but there was a lot of dealing with really difficult subject matter, particularly for treatment of women. And so we had somebody somebody there to really look after us and to, to look after both the sort of little moments like choreographing a kiss safely, but also creating an entire language um, uh, sort of and structure in the rehearsal room, um, a language around consent um, and around safety and, and communication. And... I mean, there was some extraordinary moments for I think each person involved in that process um, across the weeks that we were we were working, um, both sort of acknowledging past traumas and the way those rehearsal spaces that they'd been part of hadn't been safe in the past and what had been sort of done to them in those spaces that they had they had hadn't been able to say no to or or felt uncomfortable about, but also hope about the possibility of of how spaces could look like in the future and how to advocate for oneself. But what I found really was that that every single person involved in that project went away empowered. So all it takes is one, I don't know, five week period with somebody modeling something or a different way of the space being led or a different way of the structure being set up for people to go out and have a different perspective on what's possible. And I think I think it's the the responsibility of, of training institutions to offer those kinds of perspectives because at the moment there's a lot of the time there's that very sort of singular perspective of this is what the industry looks like or this is what's expected of you which is not only unhelpful it's just totally unrealistic you know it's also about I think embodying yeah safety in all aspects within the artistic process that it doesn't have to be a traumatic experience to be able to have to um yeah choreograph certain scenes that it can be done with a professional 
explaining how to do this and showing things and guiding the process for sure one of the things I I harp on about a lot is the danger of assumptions which again I think is that the opposite of asking questions opposite of curiosity um because we work in our training institutions and we work so much in our in our industry on assumptions this is just how it's always been done or this is what I think I'm aspiring to but nobody sits you down at conservatoire and says this is this is what you're aspiring to you're just you're just it's just modeled or it's just assumed and and those assumptions are just so deadly because actually if you once you once you start sort of tackling them once you start asking questions of them they dissolve because they're completely unrealistic um but because they're not they go unchallenged and unspoken a lot of the time even just speaking them let alone challenging or asking questions is is incredibly powerful because it requires you to communicate. And without that communication, without that connection, without that, just that bringing something into the room, it's it's absolutely deadly, I think. And that also runs the risk of, which I think happens to a lot of singers, musicians in, in general, actually, that um, you finish the conservatoire, you finish your studies, and you're kind of standing on the edge of, of an abyss. And that's when all of the questions come. And that can be really overwhelming. And I think if people are asked more about what do you want your career to look like as a singer? Why do you do what you do? What is it that inspires you? What is it that makes you feel satisfied by this career? Then they get to the end of their studies and they have more idea of where they want to go and audition, what kind of things they want to make. Maybe they don't want to audition, they want to create their own projects. And and I think that's something that could be instilled a little bit more within within education oh my goodness don't get me started um yeah episode two of uh (laughs) (laughs) well I will mention I wrote an entire newsletter series on what they didn't teach you at conservatoire so you know that is true yeah I think I think that that lack of asking you to tackle those questions I mean even the skill of of the asking or of the answering is not taught or is not modeled. So you're not even used to considering those questions or knowing what those questions might be. It's just, it's a total unknown, um, which is so, which is irresponsible, I think. I'm convinced that artistic institutions and artistic education need to have people like coaches to be able to ask those questions of their students um, because they focus so much on the uh, practical application and the building the instrument and building the technique and building the performance, but not on the, the person who, who is sitting there behind everything else. And I, I did my coaching training from the during my first year outside of, of the master. I did everything at the same time, which was crazy. But I had coaching for six months during the first year of my master. And that was the best thing that I think I have done because it allowed me to ask myself so many questions. It allowed me to actually think about the fact that, okay, maybe I don't only want to be a singer. I mean, I'm obviously doing this coaching training, (laughs) but maybe this is something that I actually really want to explore as well. And that's okay. Like, I don't only have to be one thing. Yeah. 
A hundred percent. I mean, I had to literally like, I'm going to see if I can show you over my Zoom screen, but I'll describe it to you. But like, I literally went and got a tattoo to remind myself that, that text, music and drama, all these things that I am interested in that I do can all coexist and not only can coexist, they also come together to make the strongest shape, which is a triangle. So this is why I have a triangle tattoo on my forearm to be like, those things all together make the strongest artist you can possibly be and it also looks cool when I'm pointing in photos but um (laughs) the classic director photo right but even just even just saying that can feel like sacrilege sometimes like you can be more than one thing and it not only is okay it's fucking brilliant it makes you your yourself and it, it helps you bring all of what you have to offer to the table Laura we're we're arriving at the end I always finish with this question I think it's a really nice question for different creatives to be able to give their advice to to other artists what is your advice for someone who is looking for their own authentic artistry I have two bits of advice one is that it will be a lifelong journey you cannot fix it you cannot control it you cannot get it right you can always just do the best that you can in the moment and keep being curious. And the second is that you don't need to do it alone. Um, And this is not just a plug for you and me and our work, but genuinely in my own experience, finding the people to ask you the right questions in the right spaces in which there is respect and compassion and the clarity of the the expectation being curiosity and not judgment, not trying to get it right. People who create those spaces and ask the questions and they are just, they can be friends, they can be colleagues, they can be mentors, they can be coaches, they can be teachers. Find your people, whether it's for a one-off chat or a, or a longer term relationship. I am so indebted to so many people who have, have been those, that person for me in lots of different ways. Um, I could not have gotten to where I am now and I could not be going to where I'm going next without them. What a beautiful way to end the podcast. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. I love the work that Laura does. So having this conversation was such a joy and I really hope that she is right in that there are a generation of creatives coming up that are going to be changing the way the opera is seen on stage. That's it for today. Join us next Friday for the following instalment of the Authentic Artistry podcast. Bye.